0: Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Risby, and I am the host of this podcast along with Astrid Edwards. And today we are sitting in the same room which continues to feel like a privilege despite the fact that Australia is opening up again and at times it almost feels like there isn't still a pandemic raging around the world. Today we are talking about Possibility. And I think for a lot of us, that immediately does bring to mind the current situation facing our planet. But there are so many other spaces where possibility comes to the fore in books, Astrid. For me, when I read something that is raging or angry at the state of the world or an element of our world, I tend to not be satisfied by a book that does that unless it goes to possibility, unless it goes to what solutions there might be. I'm, I'm not content with the rage alone. Are you the same?
1: Oh, agree. I think anger and rage are so important. They are a catalyst for us to act and to change. But yeah, I mean, just being angry, just being full of rage and expressing that doesn't go far enough because that is not what makes the change. It's the what comes next. It's here's the ideas, here's the solutions. And here is a little bit of hope that might help you do the work to get there.
0: I also think that the possibilities within the publishing industry are starting to broaden. I feel like increasingly I am reading books by authors who I imagine even five, ten years ago would not have been published, non-binary authors, authors of colour, authors with disabilities indeed who perhaps would have struggled to get published previously because the publishing industry is a relatively closed one. But for me, possibility takes a broader role in literature as well because of that possibility that we've talked about before of broadening people's empathy, of taking us to a to a new place, to a new thought, to a new way of thinking about the world.
1: Yeah. And you know, we've been talking about some harder things in our last few episodes. And it feels really good to kind of have moved through that and to be thinking about what comes next.
0: Today's books, the two that we are going to discuss, certainly fall into that theme of possibility. They're not entirely positive and hopeful. They're dealing with complex, difficult, and sometimes distressing issues facing individuals and our planet. But at the same time, both of the books that we're going to dissect today give you a sense of what could be. And what might be, and perhaps even what should be.
1: Today, Jam, I want to talk about On Hope by Daisy Jeffrey. Now, this is a tiny and gorgeous little book. It is part of the On series that has some of Australia's best authors, but also some of Australia's most well known figures really go into go deep into something that means something to them and means something for us all. So have you read on hope?
0: Yes, I have read it. I've got to say I am a massive addict for this on series. For those of us who are time poor and indeed the possibility of reading more <laughs> feels impossible. These small books allow you to dip in and out of a subject with someone who really has something to say. And I also know about Daisy Jeffrey because I attended the school strike for climate.
1: We attended that together. We did. And, and you know, when it is possible, I would like us to go back to the next global school strike. So, for those of you who don't know Daisy Jeffrey, Daisy is 17. She lives in Sydney and she is one of the movers behind the school strikes in Australia. Now, today we are talking about possibility, and in this case, that is the possibility of a good climate future for us all. Now, I am well on the record as having eco-anxiety, eco-grief, climate anxiety, it's referred to in so many different ways, but this book was a wake-up call for me, basically saying, get over your eco-anxiety, Astrid, and do something about it, and that was
0: cool. Yeah, and I think it's cool coming from a teenager, right? And I I don't say that to belittle because I think it's very easy for us to use language when we talk about youth climate campaigners that belittles them for their age. We shouldn't because these are the people who are going to live on the planet a lot longer than the rest of us and it matters more to them.
1: That is so true. Now, Daisy is 17 years old, but this essay coming from the writing teacher that I am is written better than many essays that I have read by adults. So firstly, kudos, this is a beautiful piece of writing. But even more important than that is the message that Daisy has for everyone. Now, I'm 40. I am as old as you can be and still be in Gen Y. I am disappointed in the boomers and I am disappointed in Gen X, but I am the upper edge of Gen Y and I have to admit we haven't done very well either. I want to read you a quote from Daisy because she is looking at someone like me and basically saying, get over yourself. Daisy writes, many adults have told us that we give them hope. You may even have told someone that yourself, but we're not kidding when we say we don't want your hope. Yes, we appreciate it, but we'd much rather be at school and not having to pile activism on top of our academic education. As former Greens leader Bob Brown excellently put it when I called to interview him about the Stop Adani campaign, Hope is a useless little four letter word unless it's accompanied by action.
0: There's some fighting words, right? And I think you can't escape the comparison with Greta Thunberg. I think a few people, and certainly a few news articles that I found, have called Daisy Jeffrey Australia's Greta Thunberg. But again, you have this young woman who is angry who is saying I don't want to be doing this work I am doing this work because there is no other choice because the alternative is to go to school and act like everything's normal when the world is on fire and to that
1: very point Daisy going to school and being asked by adults to pretend that everything is okay in here she recalls how she felt in 2018 when Prime Minister Scott Morrison said in public, and I quote, there should be less activism and more learning in schools. I roll, right? Misses the point of why there is a global climate movement and why that movement is very active in Australia. And Daisy Jeffrey should be applauded. I'm applauding you, Daisy, because I feel like maybe I should have been doing what you were doing now 20 years ago.
0: One of the things I also like about Daisy Jeffrey is that she reflects on the benefits to young people of being involved in this kind of action while she's frustrated and angry that they have to be in the first place I think she pushes back against the moralizing of adults who say you kids should be in school in a quote I found in GQ magazine she said in high school you get your cliques and your social differences and your hierarchy and weird stuff but to actually put all that aside and stand together and go, we know we need this, and we're not in power, but we're out here using people power. You need to do something. That was just astonishing. That really struck home for me, but even separate to the movement that Daisy is a part of and the important campaign to save our planet that she and young people are at the forefront of, there are things kids learn being involved in activism, being involved in change-making, being involved in politics, being involved in understanding climate science, all of that is a form of learning. To suggest that the only kind of learning that matters is book learning is, well, it's bullshit in my opinion.
1: It is. And we say that as we talk about the importance of books on a podcast for (laughs) books, but nevertheless, it is very true. Another thing that is delightful about this essay, apart from the content and the focus is the very human little bits of her life that Daisy shares with us. So as a seven-year-old, Daisy wrote to the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and said, hey, you know, here's my idea for fixing waste management. And lucky for her, the Prime Minister wrote back and said, oh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but keep going. This is really good. Now, on the front cover of my edition of On Hope, There is the quote from Malcolm Turnbull. Daisy has lost neither hope nor her wry good humour as she works to save our planet one strike at a time. And I just really enjoyed that, the fact that 10 years ago or so she wrote to the Prime Minister, got a reply, and now he is writing a quote for the front cover of her book. And I'm just very impressed.
0: I want to ask you a question, Astrid, and that question is, this episode is about possibility, Daisy's essay is about hope and yet she says she doesn't want people to feel hopeful because of the work of she and other young people. She wants them to do something. Did you finish her book feeling like there was a sense of possibility or did you finish her book feeling a sense of despair?
1: I felt possibility and that is unusual for me because normally I go to despair And that reflects on me, not the rest of the world. But there is a lot to despair about. And this book made me remember that there are possibilities and we still have time to make them happen. But our time is limited. So we don't get to sit around and talk about this for 10 years. We need to be out at the next strike.
0: Astrid, I am thrilled to introduce a new release by Yumiko Kodota. This is her debut work and it is called Emotional Female. It has just hit bookstores and online and I was fortunate enough to receive an early copy and have a read and as someone who has spent a lot of time in hospitals reading a book by a doctor who had quit was a really interesting experience for me. Have you heard about Yamiko Kodota?
1: I have heard about her, but I have not read Emotional Female yet.
0: So Emotional Female is what Yamiko was called when she was working as a plastic surgery registrar back in 2018. So a registrar for those who are less acquainted with the hospital system than Astrid and I, and well done to you. A registrar is someone who has become a doctor. She's a qualified doctor, but she isn't working in a specialty. So she's not a plastic surgeon yet so she was working as a registrar in 2018 and she was at the time working on call on a roster that put her on 24 hours on call 10 days of every fortnight so only four days a week was she not on call 24 hours a day she was fatigued (laughs) wonder why and sleep deprived and on the evening that she was called an emotional female, she was on call for emergencies. She'd been rung at three in the morning about something that wasn't urgent. It was about an appointment booking or, or something like that. And the male registrar who was working in the emergency department at the time had tried to justify that phone call again and again and again, and she just wasn't having it. She was she really pushed back. And he told her to stop being an emotional female and I tell that story it's just one story of many in this really illuminating work because it reflects the pressure we put on young doctors firstly in terms of hours and lack of sleep and expectation but also the particular pressure and the added pressure that comes with being a young woman and in Yamiko's case a young woman of colour in a system where that is hugely unusual
1: I have so many conflicting emotions right now and I agree with what you just said. The extraordinary pressure put on our medical trainees and our new doctors, particularly the women, but everybody. I am uncomfortable thinking about it, but as a quite regular patient and visitor to hospitals, it also really shits me because I don't want to be looked after by someone who is that fatigued. Now I'm not talking down to the individual who is in this system and doing their best. I am talking about none of us function very well if we've had that little sleep over a fortnight and I want my doctor awake and paying attention to me, not kind of with their game face on trying to get through it so they don't get fired.
0: I think there's also something about that word emotional, right? It's such a woman word. I can't remember a time in my life where I've heard a man called emotional.
1: Oh, men are never emotional. Not in public anyway.
0: I mean, men get to be powerful or aggressive or confident, but emotional isn't a word that is used about them very often. And it also presupposes that being emotional is a bad thing. You know, you and I don't shy away on this podcast from talking about the fact that we're both quite unwell people who spend a lot of our time in hospital. And I have to say, yes, I want a competent doctor. Yes, I want a well-slept doctor and a focused doctor, but I also want an empathetic and emotionally capable doctor. And yet the picture that Yumiko paints in her book is of a profession that tries to train the emotion out of you.
1: It's so very true. And I do think there are glimmers of hope and possibility that this is changing. There are many doctors and of various specialties and backgrounds beginning to write in Australia about their experience and their changing approach to their own profession. But they shouldn't have to change the profession on their own. We, as people who use the system, we, as people who rely on doctors at various points in our life, get a say too, or we should get a say. And if you go back into the history of how our hospitals are structured and the power hierarchies inside. It's pretty brutal and it's a centuries-long tradition and it is probably due for an update.
0: I think that's absolutely right. The way we train young doctors is something of a tradition. It's the way we've always done it. And there is, I think, a sense from doctors, particularly young doctors that I've interviewed, of... When you become senior, when you get older, when you're through the system, there's a view of, well, you should go through it because I did, because that's how I got to where I am, rather than reimagining a system, looking at the possibilities of how perhaps we could train doctors just as effectively and efficiently and to be just as capable and intelligent, but perhaps do so in a less brutal way. And certainly for Yamiko, the brutality seems to have been magnified by the fact that she was a woman the fact that she was a woman of colour. To give you an idea of it, less than 10% of surgeons in Australia are women. And in some professions, that number is closer to three or 4% of surgeons are women in some specialties. And women of colour are also few and far between. And in Emotional Female, Yumiko recounts a lot of, I would say micro, but fierce microaggressions that she experiences. Both of Yumiko's parents are Japanese. She came to Australia as a teenager. She went to medical school in Sydney, but she was an overseas student and she said she was made to feel like a second-class citizen in her class and as a result was constantly trying to prove herself. And she does say that that was part of the reason she pushed so hard because she felt like she had to prove herself to others. But there was more than one occasion where a patient didn't want her that it wasn't other doctors necessarily or senior doctors who were discriminating against her, but it was her patients. There was a patient who said, I don't want you, I want an Aussie doctor oh my God. instead. I want an Aussie doctor. And she talked about her career progression Being impacted because she was a woman of colour. We talk a lot about the glass ceiling in various professions. Yumiko in Emotional Female talks quite a bit about the bamboo ceiling, the idea that Asian exceptionalism is talked about in Australia but not necessarily valued when it comes to actually getting people into the top jobs.
1: So, Yumiko has written this book and she has quit, she has left the profession. Where did she take that training? Like that's a huge time investment, financial investment, emotional investment over years. Does she let the reader know what her next steps are?
0: Well, to jump back a step, she quit medicine in 2018, the middle of 2018, when she realised it was just too much and it wasn't going to change, that her bosses weren't going to change, that her workload wasn't going to change, that her treatment from those around her, including patients, wasn't going to change. She says that when she left, both her body and her mind were in a really bad place, that her mental health and her physical health had really suffered. She was clinically depressed and she does talk about an identity crisis, which I think is partly what you're referring to, that if you've spent your whole life studying to a relentless level of expectations to achieve one thing and then suddenly you're not going to do that thing anymore, well, who are you if you're not a doctor? And I suspect a lot of doctors would read this book with that view of, well, who are you if you don't have that status anymore? Yumiko said it took her close to two years to start feeling better. She had insomnia and she needed a lot of support to get through that period of extreme burnout and feeling worthless and stigmatised by those she'd worked with previously. She has, of course, now written a book, She works as a yoga and fitness instructor. You can follow her on Instagram. She has some really candid and difficult things to say in emotional female and some things I felt almost uncomfortable about at times because I'm someone who relies on the medical profession and reveres the hard work and the exacting nature and the relentlessness of my doctors. But it did leave me thinking there has to be a better way.
1: There does have to be a better way. I want to tell you a personal story, Jam. During the time when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I did end up in emergency overnight and nobody knows what to do with the person who might have multiple sclerosis in the emergency department. And I was subjected to some pretty gross tests that I didn't need. And it was a harrowing experience. And I cried a bit and I got angry a bit, but there was one female nurse And I still remember her to this day. And I wish I knew her name. She snuck back in after the team had left and she touched my shoulder and she looked me in the eye and she genuinely looked really distraught at my pain and my confusion. And she said, it's going to be okay. It's scary and horrible, but it's going to be okay. And she hadn't been able to show that when the rest of the team was there, when the head male doctor was there. And that bit of emotion from her is the only thing that got me through that night.
0: We need more emotional female doctors. We do, we do. And the drugs help and the care helps and the, the medicine helps. All of it is critical. I get that. I get that. But when you're alone after a surgery or while waiting for a diagnosis, often in the middle of the night and machines are beeping and it's just you on a ward with other silent people, a little bit of kindness can mean absolutely everything. And I think Yamiko is a voice for her generation of young doctors. Her experience is a specific one, but I think there are elements of it which are very much general and the medical profession needs to look inwards and look to perform. It is time for some recommendations, and I'm going to give you a children's book today, folks. But first, Astrid, you have got one that kind of links in to what we've just been talking about with Yumiko Kodota's.
1: It does today. I'd like to recommend to everybody "I'm So Effing Tired" by Dr. Amy Shah. Great title. Look, it really is. The cover is great. The title is great. And when you see a title like "I'm So Effing Tired," and you feel as tired as I often do. It feels like a treat to pick it up. So Dr. Amy Shah is actually an American doctor and she found herself in her early 30s completely burnt out physically, emotionally, mentally and she had a car accident that was her own fault and she realised that she had to take a look at her life and her health. Now... I don't normally recommend books about health or about how to fix your health because as a person who has a chronic illness, I don't think a book can fix everybody up. However, some of the discussions that Amy Shah has here really give me pause for thought. And one of the things I want to draw everybody's attention to is the fact that when you go to the doctor and you say, oh, look, you know, I'm tired, I'm burnt out and you get told, oh, you're working too hard, eat healthier. That's fine as far as it goes. Right. But also that forgets the fact that all of the drugs and all of the offerings that Western medicine has for us, were all tested on men and the female body is different, right? It reacts differently to drugs. It reacts differently to treatments. It reacts differently to food. And I guess what I find useful about this book, I'm So Effing Tied, is it gives me the language to go to my GP and say, Yeah, I'm tired, but what about all of these things? Please don't dismiss me.
0: I think that sounds awesome. And also, we know that three of the most fundamental elements of our health for those who are generally healthy people are food, what we eat, exercise, what we do with our bodies, and sleep, right? And the world has commodified the first two. We sell diets by the dozen. Exercise is hugely expensive when, of course, you could just, you know, go outside and run, but we pay a fortune for it. And I wonder if sleep is going to be the next thing that capitalism tries to put dollars around and we pay money to sleep better rather than finding ways to make the time and space to allow ourselves to sleep
1: I think you're really right. I mean, already there are apps and podcasts and special things you can buy, white noise to help you sleep. And and they're all fine as far as they go, but they kind of don't get to the question of why you can't sleep in the first place. And I'm Surfing Tired basically takes you through some of the reasons why you might be feeling tired. You might be feeling, well, to be honest, you might be feeling like shit and help you ask the questions from your GP or your health provider about maybe what you can do and get a better answer than or just sleep more and you know, eat better.
0: Astrid, I have brought a children's book to recommend today. It is by Davina Bell and Alison Colpoys and it is called All the Ways to Be Smart. Now I have a small person in my house, which means I tend to be quite familiar with children's books, but I'm guessing this one isn't one you're familiar with.
1: I have not read this one, I do have to say.
0: (laughs) This is delightful. It's probably a picture book best aimed at kids between three and five, maybe three and six at a stretch. It's got a bright green cover covered with uh, children of all races and abilities and genders. And that is the same throughout the book. It's an incredibly inclusive book from an illustrative perspective. And the book is about how being smart looks different on different people. And in its most simplest form described for our youngest of readers, it goes through all the different ways you can be smart. It talks about little things like you can be smart at drawing witches' hats and wings on bats, or you can be smart at jumping and running. You can be smart at making paper aeroplanes. But as the book goes on, you can also be smart at sitting quietly and being alone or you can be smart at making someone feel better when they're scared and it is the book that never fails at bedtime to make me a little bit teary <laughs> and my son doesn't get it but I love it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent recommendation, Jam. and the idea that you can recognise everybody's difference and still celebrate it and still give a kid, that kudos of saying, yeah, you're smart too. That's really affirming.
0: And I think to go to our theme of possibility today, if we could grasp the possibility of making every kid feel included and special and important and smart, I'd be pretty satisfied with that. That's all we've got time for today on Anonymous Was A Woman. We would like to thank Hachette Australia, without whom this season of the podcast would not be possible. We would also like to thank Bad Producer Productions and Future Women for helping us get to the airwaves to get recorded to sound as good as we possibly can and some days that's a bit of a stretch. If you would like to make sure that you never miss an episode of Anonymous Was A Woman, then you want to subscribe to the podcast. While you're there, why not leave us a rating and a review? It will help others to find Anonymous Was A Woman and get reading a little bit more.